0: You're on with Lauren Zayu for Unbossed, Unbothered, and Unfiltered, a show about what you say, how you say it, and what to do after it's said. We'll talk about communications and messaging blunders, successes, distractions, and what all of it means for you. Join me for a crash course in what you need to know in politics and issues driving the 2020 elections. Hello and welcome. My name is Lauren Zayu, and I want to welcome you to Unbossed, Unbothered, and Unfiltered. Today's show, we're discussing some of the ways that religion, particularly Christianity, has been used as a tool of oppression. Often, the right can use biblical language to cloud views that are ultimately rooted in white supremacy, and that can be confusing to navigate politically. Our guests today are well-versed in this topic through scholastic and life experience. We'll be speaking with three reverends today who all serve in Washington, D.C. with social justice and activism as a central part of their ministries. As someone who's witnessed their wisdom, as a parishioner and friend, I am sure you are in for a treat. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome to Unbossed, Unbothered and Unfiltered, Reverends Elisa Aldape, Sally Surratt and Maria Swearingen. It's so good to see all of you. Um, you've heard the topic of today's show. We've been having these conversations amongst ourselves for as long as we've known each other. And so because the viewers slash listeners uh, don't know you as well as I do, I would love it, um, starting with Elisa, if you can give us a little bit of background about your scholarship and also your current service.
1: Hey, thanks for having us. Or, um, thanks for having us. Yes, not just me, for having all of us. Um, <laughs> my name is I grew up, I was born in Texas um, and grew up in India. My parents were missionaries there for 14 years. Um, I was there for all of my 10 years. And I think that really um, influenced how I chose, where I chose to go to college Um for a lot of kids who grew up in Texas, they usually went to Baylor or to Mary Harden, um, Mary Harden, Baylor or um, one of the Baptist universities there. Um, but I chose to be a rebel and go to Sanford University, which is not really rebellious at all. It's basically Baylor light um, in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, so I went there for college having really no context for what um, no understanding for what the South was like or at least that part of the South. Um, And uh, that was a really interesting experience going to college. Um, I assumed I would fit in well because I'd grown up in a lot of predominantly white spaces Mm -hmm. uh, as the child of missionaries in a predominantly white um, denomination. Um, So I was there for four and a half years, kind of bounced around a little bit because I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, Then in 2012, I went to Atlanta to go to McAfee School of Theology, which is part of Mercer, so another small private Baptist university. Um, so I studied there for three years, focusing in congregational um, leadership um, and what it means to be the church um, in the 21st century, um, mm-hmm. going towards a post-Christendom world. Um, it's a lot of fancy talk, meaning what does it mean to be church when people aren't really going to church? And so graduated in 2015, which is an interesting time. I mean, everybody says it's an interesting time when we graduated. Um, but so the day they did the laying on the hands for the graduates in chapel. Um, it was the day after the riots begin in Kirkwood, um, in St. Louis, the riots are happening. Um, the black lives matter movement is starting to really, um, pick up force. Uh, what else happened? The presidential uh, campaign started kicking up, where people were making their announcements. This is a month before Trump makes his announcement. Um, and Kelly Danner was just executed. And right before chapel, the people who were trying to help us, you know, build up our resumes as we were looking for uh, church jobs, reminded us that making radical claims was not going to get us jobs. And so this was the climate in which we were starting to become leaders um, of faith and leaders in churches. And that was a really interesting time. Um to start my career as a woman of color in predominantly white churches in a time when saying that black lives matters or that no human is illegal um, was some type of radical statement. Um, And so I think that really uh, changed my view of what it meant meant to be a pastor and a person of faith uh, because clearly the um, issue didn't go away when we remained silent. And so after November of 2016, I decided I would not be silent anymore, um, because one of the questions they asked me in my ordination review was, was I willing to die? not the quick, easy, martyrous death, but the slow and embarrassing and you know uh, job um, on the line type of death for what I believed. And so um, maybe not necessarily dying physically, but that idea of risking um, everything for what I believed and um, acting that out. and so that I think that's a big part of, um, my journey of what it, of being a pastor and being um, a leader in this, in this space.
0: Thank you, Alisa. I'm really glad to hear you. And I'm glad to hear that, that bit of your story. Uh, Reverend Surratt and Swearingen, uh, if y'all could take it away.
2: Yeah, I guess I'll start by saying that we're not messing with, uh, social distancing right now because we're married to each other. So, um, Secret yeah, there you have it. Uh, so Sally and I co-pastor um, a congregation here in, in downtown Washington, D.C., Calvary Baptist Church. Um, we've been there pushing four years now. And again, Elise, it's so interesting to hear you talking about timelines, right? And, and when you find yourself, where you find yourself. And so we were in a search process with this congregation before, uh, the election in 2016 and then we're having conversations with them as the uh, election and its aftermath was unfolding and then moved here what 2 weeks after the inauguration yeah. That's in January, right? Yeah.
3: January.
2: Um so it's really interesting we talk a good bit about, you know, uh and I'll try to say more about our story or maybe let Sally say more about our story, but like to be a a queer couple um Choosing to, to pastor congregation here in DC and having both of us grown up in the South and, and, and also, I think looking for, um, space to get to, 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 to be a bit freer, if you will, um, with our imagination. It was really strange, um, to enter into life here in DC when, um, the, cl- the climate, the experience, the cloud, Began to ha- hang over it and has, you know, these four years. So, a lot of our questions and imaginings have been like, how do we walk with people who know that they feel called right now to resist um, the trajectory of, of what's happening, of white nationalism in America, of it not only existing, but being like the administration's platform? Um, and so, you know, we have congregants who. Uh, work in the federal government. We have congregants who work resisting state power. We have congregants who are activists. We have, con- right, who are all asking intense questions about what does it mean to be faithful now and what has it meant to be faithful these last years. But as far as our story, I uh, grew up um, uh, in the South, closeted, um, religious. I'm a pastor's kid. It's a long story. It's a long journey. There's a lot of pain attached to it. Mm -hmm. And there's also a lot of love um, that's been birthed out of it. So that's the short version. The short version. How did I, that was, that
3: was... Did pretty well. I mean, I'm realizing as I sit here and listen to all of us that we were all initially educated, at least Baptist colleges. So Maria was at Baylor, which you referenced earlier. I went to Carson Newman College undergrad back in the day. And so... um, it's interesting now to like look back on like the sliver of the universe that I understood at that moment in time. Mm -hmm. I had a more circuitous journey into ministry, went to business school and spent years working in that world for about a decade prior to uh, going back to school to get to my master's in theological education. Um, But to kind of drive towards your point of how the church and religious language and everything like that, um has affected the political process. My first year at Candler, I found myself researching the Proposition 8 debate back in California. Um, that was in 2008. Ironically, that's the summer we met and fell in love. And But I didn't have my ears perked, really. I mean, I knew of it in the air. I knew that it meant condemnation for me and my life and the love that I was finding and all of that but I didn't realize the ways in which religious, moral and political language were all intersecting Mm -hmm. to sort of create the oppression. And so um, Mm -hmm. as I dove in and researched some of that, um, you know, Proposition 8 was to ban uh, same-sex marriage in California. Mm -hmm. And when it started out, it was a, a ballot measure. When it started out, Uh, it was going to get voted down by like 10 points. And then $83 million spent on the social issue in the state of California alone. And it ended up passing by four points. And so to look at that evolution and everything, and essentially what happened is, you know, the religious right and other clergy and all these people got together to use moral and religious language to condemn same-sex marriage Um, but uh, you know the progressive voice or whatever tried to keep distance from religion and avoid using moral language and to say only a political issue and everything and and I think you know diving into all of that made it like very very clear to me that you can't just see moral language right Um, you have to use moral language and I think Uh, you know, William Barber and others, but the poor people's campaign for sure. You know, then the next year I did my research on him and the moral, you know, the moral Mondays movement at that point in time, eventually became the poor people's campaign. But you can't just see moral language. You have to be willing to use that. Um, And, uh, and I think, so he's a good example of saying there are more moral issues besides like abortion and gay marriage. Right. Like, um, that morality and religious language speaks to far more issues than just those things.
0: So. Thank you for that. And I think that's actually a great segue because uh, moral language, I do think is something that a lot of people on the left struggle with, uh, mm-hmm. mainly under the idea that I think, I guess it's, it's uh, it's, I guess one is, if we acknowledge that organized religion has caused a lot of issues uh, historically, causes a lot of issues currently, um, so I think that there's a desire to keep distance from it and to assume that it has that the way Republicans cloak it and use it is the right way, is the accurate way. And so it's like, oh well, we don't even want to engage because that's their thing. It's like, well, no, it's something that they're monopolizing and manipulating, not something that they have have a monopoly on. I guess if that makes sense. in mind, I would like to transition into our holdup period where we are talking about something that's not given enough weight or enough perspective. Um, and so to kind of go in the reverse order, I'm going to start with uh, Reverend Sarath and Reverend Swaringen and then Reverend Aldape. Um, but if I can call you Sally, um, go, <laughs> go ahead and I guess, let us know what you have found to be something that in this conversation, like isn't given its due
3: yeah um and lauren I apologize for not giving you the preview on this one but our conversation like forces me to like continue with it is that it's not that racism and white supremacy have like infiltrated the church and that the church is pure and we have to like separate ourselves from it um and get down get back to the to the goodness of it all and everything honestly it's that the church like from the days of colonialism was the one to create this language, to prop it up, to like, to, you know, use uh, religious language to support white white supremacy. You know, we moved here from Greenville, South Carolina, and Richard Furman, whom the university is named after, is the one who wrote the SBC, like the Southern Baptist Convention's, like, massive defense of slavery, right? Using religious language. And so to pretend that, you know racism is just like a problem the church is dealing with now and not one that the church has created. I think that would be where I'd be like, "Hold up now, we got to have a different conversation."
0: I'm sorry y'all, we we got to sit there for a minute. Um because <laughs> Uh, Sally came out with the big guns blazing. Sorry. I, I, <laughs> I'm sorry, but yeah. No, I, I, I totally support it, But I wanted to give space if anyone wanted to respond to that or or echo or
1: feel similarly. We talk about this all the time. So at least I'd love to hear. Yeah, no, I just like fired up like, oh my goodness, yes. No, so I think, you know, for, for me, it, 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 there's just, it's always so much to impact, you know, my so as Mex, you know, I'm a Mexican American woman from South Texas. My mother was an immigrant who moved here. Not when she was she was 16 when she moved here. Um they were Catholic and when they moved to America, um there was a pastor who you know, and I know there was good intention there um for, you know, bringing them into the Baptist church and wanting to, them to be involved. Um but I feel like there was a lot of culture um, that they left behind, because to be an American evangelical Protestant person, um, and I say that being like as like being the biggest Baptist fan girl ever, um, there were a, there were a lot of parts of my culture that I feel like I missed out on, um, and so you know, growing up in predominantly white spaces, like I mentioned earlier, um, there was a lot of culture that I that I didn't really understand, um, and for a very long time, there was a lot of trying to conform into what it meant to be, you know, this person that could fit in at sameford fit into my denomination, fit into what made people comfortable as mm-hmm. a pastor. Um, and yeah, I think it, there's colonialism. I mean, Christianity was colonized. Um, and I've said this before, like, oh God, I'm gonna forget the emperor's name who like, Said Christianity or God was the reason I won this war. And that is when Christianity became like the religion of the empire. And it's like that's the minute that we came into power, is the minute that we lost the true essence of what it meant to be people of faith. Mm-hmm. You know, a follower who, or like a person who was brown and poor and said, go to the margins and that's where you find God. And so, I mean, I think it starts way further back, but then it's like, and I think Sally was right. It did not creep in suddenly in 2016 when we were like, what is this? Like, no, it's been there. Um, It's been how immigrants are treated when they come to America and say, leave all that, all your culture and all your religion behind. Um, It's there when, you know, we tell people that you need to work for your food and you should, you don't deserve government assistance. It has been there from the beginning. Um, And I think now like trying to understand what does it mean to be a Mexican American woman While also trying to decolonize my own faith and realizing just how far into my very bones that it has just seeped in. Whether it is talking about ownership of my own body to where my resources come from when I write a sermon, um, white supremacy has just really seeped into our culture and our faith um, in the church. So, Sally, (laughs) yeah, like. Yeah, that, that was just, that was spot on um, with how you, with what you said. And Lauren, I
2: I, yeah, Lauren, I know you had another pastor on here recently who you happen to be married to. I and, did. uh, you know, he, uh, Talked a good bit about the role of Black religious imagination, Black Christian imagination in America. And and so, in one sense, like if we want to accept that we don't want to act surprised anymore, right, in 2000, right, like how did this happen? We have to go to the sources, to people who are the sources for knowledge, knowing this for 400 years, right? Right. The, 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 the people who know whiteness deeply choosing to be shaped by and formed by. Um, and so, you know, the, the real I, I mean, I think the future of any possibility for salvaging um, whatever Christian imagination is in America um must begin by listening to and being shaped by and centering and elevating people who've had to analyze, interrogate, resist, and live as a result of this um, problematic marriage between Christianity and religious and white nationalism right mm. we we have to choose to be shaped by different sources, yeah. Yes,
0: and it is a choice. It's a choice um, of to decide what you're shaped by. I fully agree there, um, Maria. Did you want to give uh, perhaps your hold up moment or something you feel like isn't given its due?
2: Um, I, I mean, it's kind of tied to this. I do. I I I, I worry. Some, I worry about lots of things these days, but um, I worry a good bit about some of the language that can be used. Um, and I get it. Some of it's cathartic, uh, you know, around kind of Donald Trump's behavior, that it's you know, childish or it's ridiculous or and there's not enough credence to how it's it's authoritarian and deeply strategic and um, intending to to be fascist. Right? like, and, and that they're that, you know, around 30% of the American population has indicated in, in, you know, polling that they value an authoritarian leader. And that number can really be sweat. Like I would say it's higher. Um, And, and I would say that not paying attention to the ways in which white nationalism and white supremacy, and that cocktail of white nationalism and patriarchy, right? The, that that's the whole thing. Um, How that shapes people to become like, to value authoritarianism, Mm -hmm. right? So if you value um, white supremacy and you value patriarchy and you kind of love that for your society, right? You're gonna want an authoritarian leader. Um, That's what's happening.
0: I I know, I, I fully see you there. And I think that's important to name primarily because we know that um, to be direct, one of the continuous battles of being a Black Mm or brown person in America is having your authority questioned, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So I find that to be interesting, particularly in light of our current situation, but also remembering like the sheer panic on Fox News and of the right wing of Barack Obama being an authoritarian, of being a tyrant, of being this thing to be feared, and Mm -hmm. even so much of his battle with Congress um, and in the media was having his authority questioned. And so to then come around, not even uh, what, four years later five years later, whatever it ends up being and have that be the preference is is indicative of white supremacy in the way that um, of, of the things that, president trump has done many of them are outside the scope of the authority of the president but because we are not trained to question the authority of white men Mm -hmm. it's allowed to take place however Mm -hmm. however it does yeah um so yeah i fully agree maria that that is alarming 30 percent is is interesting particularly when it's called authoritarian
2: and not not to get too biblical but like why not (laughs) uh you know the early portions of the good book are stories about people who keep saying, I want a king. Yeah. Mm. And this God, this Exodus God, right? This God of liberation keeps saying back, No, you don't. Yeah. I'm telling you, No, you don't. Yes, we do. We want a king. We want a king. Mm. I'm telling you, No, you don't. What you want is freedom, right? Yeah. What you want is equality. What you want is imagination. What you want is love. You don't want a king. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. So, yeah.
0: So it's always been there. That's that's the desire. That's that's what people are looking for. Alisa, um, did you have anything for us as far as what you wanted us to hold up and think about?
1: Um, yeah, I think we've kind of you know hit it at different spots right now, but I think um, coming from you know a truly believing that we are Easter people, um, the things there are things that need to die um, in order to be resurrected into something good and holy and powerful. Um, and I, as a person who loves Jesus in my very, you know, soul, I just, there is something about the power that Christianity has contained, um, American Christianity in particular, um, that it has, there are parts of it that I think, what if it just died? What if, um, yeah, what if it just died and it was reborn into something that didn't have the power that it has now? Um or what would it mean if you know the, the the main religion in America is not Christianity anymore? Like can can we can like can we be okay with that? Like can it not be a stat that into a sermon where people just like, "Oh my god," and someone just let that sink in. Like, "Yeah, let it sink in and let it be okay." Um because it puts God in a box um and I think, um I think for me as a as a as a faith leader um I think our faith needs to get checked um and the privilege that we have the faith privilege that we have needs to be checked um and that's a very scary thing to to think because that means some of my own power um is relinquished, and you know by all means, please. <laughs>
0: Understood. Understood. I think that that is powerful because something that's interesting, uh, in in my own like navigating the world as a black woman, right? I, something I've I've thought about the is the the weight you feel, um, as an other, like for your fellow man, if that makes sense, right? So when I'm a black woman and I enter a space, whether I'm the first or or the only one, I'm there. I'm concerned about the black women who come behind me and what my representation here means um, for, for opportunities that other black women might have for better or for worse. Like I acknowledge that that can be problematic as well, but um, there's something about the, the power of white people being an individual and not being concerned with how that manifests. Right. And the reason I'm thinking about it in particular is because since this country began, we've had, white presidents who profess to be christian that white male presidents who profess to be christian with the exception of one um and there's never like whether for good or for bad there's never the like oh maybe we shouldn't have any more white male christian presidents in the same way like i remember actively after uh, president obama was elected there was the in the community, there was excitement, of course, and and fever and all that. But also like, yeah, this is our one. They're not letting another one come Mm in. Um, And I think that became rapidly uh, clear with Senator McConnell's declaration that this will be a one-term president. Granted, that did not come to fruition, but that was the decision that he'd made uh, and then proceeded on his uh, campaign or his campaign of obstruction from there on out. Um, and keeping that in mind, I would uh my hold up or something I think we should give more weight is that the Senate uh as a part of the fallout from President Trump's comments about the Proud Boys tried to do a general condemnation uh or take to vote a general condemnation on white supremacy this week. I believe it was October 1st. Uh so immediately after, immediately after, and it failed. Mm-hmm. It failed. Um, because there are not enough Senate Republicans willing to pronounce to the general public that they believe white supremacy is bad. And I think that should be alarming uh, for the reasons on its face, but also because in a year like this one, I think it also speaks to the election cycle. There's an assumption that um, Vice President Biden has this in the bag and that, you know, election night will be the end of the four-year reign of this person. And uh, we don't know that. But also, I think it says a lot that for Senate Republicans to be as allegedly precarious um as they are, they still will not um turn against white supremacy. I'm thinking about Lindsey Graham and the belly aching he's been doing everywhere about Jamie Harrison raising money. I'm thinking about Mitch McConnell uh, and his challenger Amy McGrath I'm thinking about MJ Hager down in Texas um all of whom are are in places that are normally solidly red putting up a fight and even in the midst of all of that um or I think because of the midst of all of that there is this clinging to white supremacy that is happening as the as what the Republican Party has decided to circle their their bandwagons with like this is this is what we're going to stake our claim on and uh that's something that I think didn't get enough weight. keeping that in mind, I want to shift into I Ain't Sorry, right? Which is where we give what we're unapologetic about. Um, and mixing it up a little bit, we're going to have uh, Maria go first this time. Um, so what's something that you are unapologetic about in your ministry, in your life, or or any of the above?
2: Yeah, I ain't sorry about saying that I really am at a place um, when I think about whatever whatever the Christian tradition is, whatever it is to be in the future, I'm just not really interested anymore <laughs> in conversations, particularly as a queer life about whether I am or am not to be welcome in certain mm-hmm. places. And, and I don't, I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out a way to say this that isn't just about me or about ego, but I think it's time for churches and Christian tradition to understand that actually it's not that I should or shouldn't be welcome. It's that I should be teaching. And here's what I mean by that. Like it is the, it is the people with experiences. Um, It is the people who've been wounded by the, the, the realities of white supremacy, patriarchy, heteronormativity within the Christian tradition that I think have the bandwidth and the imagination to know how to heal and Mm -hmm. how to reform and how, as Elisa put it, to how to let die and resurrect the heart of the tradition. Um, And so I'm just not really up for wondering or musing anymore about whether or not queer people can or can't be or should or shouldn't be or um, whether or not we do or don't need more diversity in our church. And in life. I want the posture to dra- dramatically shift, right? For For Christians to say, if we are to be anything meaningful, if we are to be moral, if we are to be shaped as moral witnesses in the world, it is time to now listen to And to be led by people who carry the wounds of the violence. Hmm. Um, That's where I am.
0: Sounds like a great thing to be unapologetic about. I I fully, (laughs) fully affirm. Uh, Reverend Aldape?
1: So I think going along the lines of, you know, we need diversity. uh, I think it's taken a while to be, to come to a place where the difference between we need your voice and we need you for the website or the brochure or the denominational information for the big conference that comes up. Um, knowing the difference between those two things and knowing where where I am truly needed and welcomed um, and where all of me is truly needed and welcomed and. Um, And it's, it's, it's quite a tricky and hard, uh, hard, hard thing to work through. And so, uh, however, that is, that is something that I'm learning to fully be unapologetic for, um, or not sorry for, um, in particular, like I mentioned earlier, you know, this idea of body ownership Mm kind of coming from colonial Christianity, um, and how that translates into the bodies of black and brown women and how our bodies have been policed, how our families were, or how our mothers and other women were taught that our bodies need to be policed, and kind of really leaning into fully accepting what what all of my body brings to faith, into my calling, into my community, and knowing that just for that existence, that is resistance. Um, and also, meaning, what does that mean for the privilege that it carries, and? How I get to move in the world and the way others don't and trying to be like and trying to recognize that and fully um, confess of that. And when I have missed it. So I think that's the thing that I have been working through to be completely and fully unapologetic about. Um, Yeah, that's fair. It is.
0: It is always the journey. Right. And so you're you're on the journey of being unapologetic about it. And I think it's a, a great journey to be on. I fully support and affirm that. And finally, uh, re- well, finally, light, I guess, Reverend Surratt. Yeah. So
3: um, i ain't sorry, totally builds off of Elisa's, I think. Um, right. I'm not sorry that I'm done with like a theological separation of the body and the soul. I think that's a bunch of crap and it also is where we um construct a lot of things like white supremacy or the way that we treat bodies women's bodies black bodies all kinds just the way that we abuse bodies so we we have this this story this theological narrative that as long as you save the soul you can do whatever the heck you want to to the body and i think Uh, Kelly Brown Douglas does a beautiful job of really like telling us how far back that separation goes, but how that cracks the door open for all kinds of abuse. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you point to it earlier too, Lisa, about the abuse that comes from joining empire and power and colonialism and all of that to our theological narrative. And when we say, as long as we save your soul, it doesn't matter what we do to your body. Nah, that's not, I, I want no part in that religion. Like mm. um, somebody who I think is doing brilliant work on that front right now um, is Rizma Minikin. I don't know if you guys know this work It's called My Grandmother's Hands. Um, he's a black trauma therapist, honestly, and he's doing all this historical work on how like our nervous systems, our bodies carry the weight of centuries. <laughs> and trauma Mm. and all that kind of stuff and that Mm. until we're willing to pay attention and heal like the trauma in our in our bodies and our nervous systems etc you know i'm thinking uh amy cooper for example who is in theory a progressive liberal etc right who like calls the cops on the bird watcher in new york right like i mean until you get to the root of where it resides within our beings, I don't think we're going to like work it out of ourselves. And so (laughs) I'm really um, compelled by how are we going to actually remember um, and reconstruct like the whole of what it means to be human. Um, So I'm sorry that I'm done with that theological story about how you can be, doesn't matter about your body as long as you're saved,
1: right? Yeah, it's not enough. Which is so odd because remember what council was it? It's the early church, one of the councils where they're trying to decide whether Gnosticism is like sound or not, and they decide that it's not sound because Gnosticism, Gnostics were like all about body. Or, Mm -hmm. Body, bad, soul, good, and early Christmas was like, no, 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 no. That's it's a whole, it's a whole thing, Mm -hmm. both. And yet here we are, here we are, thousands of years later, being like, just save the souls. (laughs) We'll see you next year when we're back running your VBS.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, I actually think that's a really great transition into uh, a question I wanted to pose to y'all. Just as three brilliant people who have spent a great deal of time in these topics and we've seen a lot of concern about um, the Christian response to the president's uh, COVID-19 diagnosis. Um, I'm seeing a lot of pray for your enemies, a lot of turn the other cheek, a lot of um, things that that feel like they could be in tension. Um, it, and so I was wondering if y'all had given any thought to the uh dynamic of an oppressor um falling ill or or some other we can maybe say natural uh, somewhat asked for i don't know um uh so consequences of actions and as christians if if that's something that is is i guess there's for lack of a better phrase a, a response that feels authentic uh, particularly valuing um black brown and queer lives at at the center.
2: Whew. <laughs> it I mean it is some it is some strategic gaslighting some serious um and 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 that well, honestly to be too blunt like it's like it's like an abuser physically harming a partner or spouse, right? and then crying and then Mm. right. Like because of, because of the tears, we just keep telling her, you know, stick it out, stick it out, stick it out. Like it's, um, it's just so violent. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: I mean, I could say more, but like, it's just so violent to uh, demand question that of, of lives being oppressed by this administration. I just, yeah, it's violent. I
3: don't, I don't no, no, no. I mean, I think that that's been the conversation we've been having the last several days. It's just like, you know, and Maria alluded to it earlier that we call them infantile or whatever else. Mm-hmm. But, you know, a lot of people who work with children are like, yeah, but I know children that are a lot more kind and, you know, all these other things. I think, Honestly, like the language of abuser, um, it really does stick in a way. And I think that, um, you know, particularly for those who are right in the, the reach and in the line of Trump's abuse whose bodies literally are being harmed by his language and his policies and everything else to tell those being abused that they have to show compassion in this moment. I, just, I think that that's a...
2: And a certain a really kind problem, of compassion, right? Like, yeah.
3: A problematic call. Now, yeah, I don't have anything more to say about that. Like, um, Enough people have tried to, like, sort of say we should pray for Pray for the president. All I mean, do what you need to do. But like, until we actually name the abuse for what it is, I think it's hard to ask that.
0: Um, Well, it's interesting, right? That uh, a lot of the language being used. My my concern is that it also reminds me of when, um, particularly, black people are killed by police, and there's this um push to forgive the police yeah, officer. Like yeah. they ask them over and over in interviews. They um, you know, they, they have the statements of forgiveness in the courtroom. They have like this big production, right, mm-hmm. around forgiving uh this this person who took the life of someone you love and that it's, it's immediate, right? It's not that you get a chance to mourn and go to therapy and grief counseling and come to this conclusion for yourself. This is something that needs to happen. A a public forgiveness is important and um, is, is honestly when it's not uh, given, there's almost a a hostility on behalf of reporters and police, like, oh, how, how dare you not forgive? The Christian thing to do is forgive. When in reality, one, I think, um, so one on its face, I think a lot of that is for production and is a cheap forgiveness, right? We know that actual forgiveness and reconciliation and rectifying of things takes time and energy and intention that this isn't being given, right? So it's already cheap and shallow on its face, Right. But also um there's a dismissal of a very real and authentic reaction that I think when not taken seriously and when not weighed properly has for lack of a better word, really bad results um on, on the yeah. individual being forced to do so or at least forced to profess so.
1: Yeah. Um Elisa? Yeah, no, I think, uh, I think everyone is absolutely right. And, um, so th- about a month ago, I, I, my clergy coach and I have come to the conclusion that I don't really know what the word forgiveness means right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, hmm. I, uh, I am very thankful for liturgies and guided prayers because when I don't believe them, in those moments, there are other people who can believe them and pray them for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And it has been, and I've talked to Lauren about this. It's been really fascinating to see how quick white faith leaders have been to say, do I can, you know, do I pray for the president's death? No. Should we pray? Should we praise that it's happening? No, but you should pray for your enemy. And it immediately triggered any moment or any experience I've had where I have been bullied. I have been name called. I have been harassed by a, some, by a man or other persons. And when I have stood up for myself, I have been forced to say, I'm sorry for their <laughs> hurt feelings. Um, and so last week and thir- like Thursday at all of the, like just watching social media, people saying we need to pray for the president. It was much more triggering than I anticipated. Um, and for me right now where I am is I'm thankful other people can pray because they can believe it for me. They can pray it for me. Um, And yeah, that's where, that's where I am. And um, you know, as someone whose grandmother died alone and by, you know, without any help, and almost in a hallway because of COVID-19 um, because of how scary it was for people. It's, it's really, and that's just like the, right? Like that is just one story. Um, mm-hmm. It, it is, um, it is hard to come to a place of forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's, that's where I'm at right now. Um, of When people in power demand um demand us demand a holy a holy act from us um. and it is
0: it is a holy act um and I, I think something i'm struggling with right is even so one i the phrase love your enemies pray for your enemies mm-hmm. uh being what it is like to me if we want to take the word enemy i feel like there's an inherent equality in that word Right. Like there's a and so I don't even know if enemy can be the right word at times because there's a power dynamic here. That's not Mm. that's not equal. Mm -hmm. And so I don't I don't know that it's fair to say that 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 call um, is even applicable, if I can be frank. Um, And also, I think that. it. My first thought was like, but we know this president hasn't lifted a single prayer for the 210,000 lives um, that are the direct result of, of his incompetence, of his negligence, of his apathy. Um, and so it, it's, a, it's hard, for lack of a better word, to be a, a Christian in a space when that label means different things to different people and the differences between those, like, have actual lives on the line. That is a a rough place to be. I just,
2: but yeah, but I mean, it's what happens when Christianity doesn't center the lives of those, who, right? Like when we don't treat our religion as one shaped by people who were oppressed by imperial systems and resisted them with um, reimagining the social order, right? When we Mm -hmm. don't see it that way, then we don't position ourselves in relationship to say like, who's suffering most right now. Yeah. That's where, that's where we center ourselves. That's what our tradition tells us to do. So whatever's Mm -hmm. up with them, that's what we're talking about. Whatever's happening to them. That's what we're praying about. Whatever they're suffering through, that's what we're in solidarity with. Right, like until until we recapture that moral language, we have nothing to give the world. Hmm. Yeah, but transactional interpretations of things like forgiveness, right? Even them,
0: right? A convenient Christianity of sorts. Yeah.
2: Okay. Um, you, you know, Oh, huh? I said, you know, or whatever. Right? <laughs> okay, you know, so something like. You know. <laughs>
0: Keeping that in mind, um, I want to go ahead and bring us uh, to our final segment of Drunk in Love, right? Wherein you're going to give us something that you've been consumed by uh, recently, whether work or play, um, or something you'd wish you'd gotten a chance to say earlier. And then you're going to let us know the cocktail of your choice or drink of your choice in in the moment. Um, and I guess to mix it up, I can go first. Yeah. Um, <laughs> something I've been uh, completely consumed by lately has been rest in its own way so i uh, something that's been interesting about this time frame has been a lot of conversation around rest and the desire that capitalism gives us to make everything productive everything monetized like if you're if you're not earning money behind it then obviously it's a waste of time and so giving myself permission to rest permission to do nothing permission to um to take care of myself has very much been a journey that I didn't realize I would struggle with in the way that I do. Uh, And so I I think I've been consumed by uh, taking time for myself, figuring out, what I like, what I want to do with this gift of time that I've been given. Uh, this show, of course, being one of those, but it's it's been interesting that this time frame has given me a real reflection on what it means uh, to, what self-care means on a on a host of different levels, has been my my latest uh, thing that I'm consumed by. And what I'm having today is red wine because it matched my outfit, if I'm honest. So that's <laughs> That's, a great <laughs> That's why I'm here. Um, and so, keeping that in mind, sending it over to Reverend Aldape.
1: Thank you. Um, I think what I have just been consumed by in these days. Um, I think in the last two years, uh, you know, I, I, so I had I had brain surgery two years ago, and um, you know, before that, I was a pretty regular runner, and I really, really, I was good at it. Um, And it's taken two years to get to a place where I can run again without feeling dizzy or tired or like I'm about to pass out. Um, And for a lot of it, it was about changing my body to what I thought was deemed acceptable. Um, And so like I mentioned earlier, being fully accepting and loving my own, loving myself um, and who, who I am and what I offer in spaces, in relationships it's, it's a really cool place to be in. Um, and it changes relationships, some for not so great and some for the better. Um, and so, yeah, being fully accepting of my body and what it is, what it's capable of doing, um, Mm -hmm. and knowing its limits and knowing when to say I'm going to stop. Um, yeah, that's what I've just, I've really fully been consumed in that. Um, and learning how to speak up when, you know, there's just, just, yeah, knowing to listen to it, listening to my body, because that's something I don't think, um, girls and, um, and people are are trained to do is listen to their body. And so it has been a really fun uh, journey in doing that. So, yeah. And today I am drinking a White Claw, um, because <laughs> this is what I had in my fridge. <laughs> Sounds like a great reason
0: to drink it. Definitely. Um, and sending it over to the reverends of Calvary yeah. Baptist Church. Uh,
2: I, you know, we're keeping up uh, be, having lived in South Carolina with uh, Jamie Harrison's uh, campaign. And um, anyway, uh, we are our, our drink of choice uh, is just uh, a little bourbon on the rocks. But Ooh. But the difference is in paying homage to Jamie's brilliant hashtag, you cannot outdo black people move, which was to put plexiglass wall uh, between him and oh, uh, uh, so great. he's so, so we poured ours in a plastic cups today um, <laughs> in homage to <laughs> Jamie Harris, his, his brilliant act there um, because For me, it was uh, a really powerful symbol or image of uh, what it means to protect the spirit and the body right now. And so we still got to show up to places that um, uh, (laughs) uh, leave us in some pretty vulnerable and uncertain um, spaces, no doubt. Um, But it doesn't mean we can't be thoughtful and smart about how we do it and about how we protect ourselves in the process. And I just think that Jamie's act, um, I mean, I laughed for 20 minutes, but also like, as I reflected, I was like, oh, that's so powerful. That's just such a powerful image of what it means to to care for yourself while also like showing up. Yeah. So, plastic cups.
3: Amen. plexiglass.
2: This is kind of like
3: plexiglass. Even just the chance to get to elect somebody like Jamie Harrison, who's a brilliant candidate, right? Like, that's, I mean, watching the debate, you're like, please God, this is what we want politics. Like, this is what we want representation to look like, right? Like,
0: I agree. I agree. It has been an absolute delight to have all of you here. Thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy day. If someone wants to reach out to you to probe more about the brilliance that each of you has shared, uh, what are some of the ways that they can contact
1: you? You can contact me on the bird app known as the twitter.com. Um, I think my handle, I think I know my handle is uh, at a, 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 l, d, a, p, e. It's just my last name. Cause that was my email handle for college. And I figured just use it for everything. Um, so yeah. And my tag name is Buharista Theology because, you know, it's spooky season.
2: It is. It is. is. Uh, You can find us on Twitter and Facebook and then honestly, like connect with us, uh, calvarydc.org. Um, if you go to Calvary, uh, Baptist Church's Facebook page, we're on every Sunday morning. You get to hear what we're thinking about and up to there. um, as we, uh, live stream worship, um, via zoom that just added a password or something. We got to get that figured out this week. <laughs> Alisha, yeah, it's see. like every week, right? Something, something
0: else. It is else? Something, new yeah. um,
2: something new every week.
0: Every <laughs> week. Um, <laughs> uh, thank y'all so much for being here. Um, and I hope to have each of you back on soon in, in various capacities. It's an honor to get to be with you. Okay. So that wrapped this episode of Unbossed, Unbothered, and Unfiltered. If you're looking for me, you can find me at at Lauren Zayu on Twitter and Instagram, or you can follow us on Apple, Spotify, or YouTube. I hope to see you soon. Thank you for tuning in to Unbossed, Unbothered, and Unfiltered with host Lauren Zayu and music by Lighthouse Productions. For more information on Unbossed, Unbothered, and Unfiltered or to review today's episode, please follow at Lauren Zayu on Twitter and Instagram or subscribe to the Lauren AU YouTube channel.